I'm Lonnie Diane Rich, and this is How Story Works. Hey, everybody. How are you doing this month? Things are going great here. I wanted to give you guys some updates on what's been going on, what I've been learning in my process of both leading and participating in the Year of Writing Magically Workshop. Once again, I am still feeling that uh, kind of dual sense of reality where I, um, as a teacher, feel completely confident, as a workshop participant, feel totally lost and like I have no idea if I'm actually going to be able to do these things. But it's been such a fascinating experience, and I really wanted to talk to you guys about it because we are deep in this discovery space. We have done um, classes on building soundtracks. We have been doing collages. We've been doing discovery writing, all of these things that you need to do to kind of like figure out how you want to tell this story. It has opened up everything for me incredibly. And yet, despite having done this before, despite having gone through this experience before, every single time I feel that sense of doubt, you know, but I realized a few days back, I kind of looked at the calendar and was like, oh, hey, discovery doesn't last forever. Like the whole reason why you do discovery is so that you can get to the drafting which is the actual writing of the thing, which is the pain point. I mean, I think for a lot of us, but definitely for me, like drafting is my least favorite part of the process. And actually having to like write this stuff and put it together has been incredibly intimidating for me. Uh, So then I I had this realization and I was teaching the class and I was like, hey, we're all going to be drafting. And you could kind of see like the faces and the gulps and all that kind of stuff. Uh, But we're in the discovery still. We start drafting on April 30th. I'm very excited about that. It's been so incredibly fun. The creativity has been flowing. And I'm so excited to see all of my students going through this same experience with me, which is, I'm not sure this is going to work. And then it starts working. And once again, you know, I, I have to like trust my experience and trust my knowledge on this, even when I, as a writer, don't really feel like that's going to work. So we are getting set up for drafting, and I have a special guest, NaNoWriMo founder Chris Beatty, is going to be coming into the class to give a pep talk before we start drafting. That is going to be amazing. Um, And it's just been so much fun. And I have to tell you all, if you have a long-form fiction project that you want to do, head out to yearofwritingmagically.com, get on the mailing list, and you will be the first to know before anybody else knows the mailing list is going to know first when those applications open. So incredible. And I am just having the absolute most fun both teaching it and participating in it. And the thing is that this is like teaching this workshop is my plan to keep me on track for writing one book a year. It's incredible. I'm having such a great time. So anyway, go to yearofwritingmagically.com, sign up to be on the mailing list, and you will be the first to know when applications open again. Okay, I also want to tell you guys about Dear Writer. That is my uh, Substack newsletter. This month, I have been talking about how to work up confidence when you're just not feeling it, which is something I've kind of been going through in the Year of Writing Magically workshop. I I just find confidence can be a balloon that is so easy to deflate. And so I'm talking about how to build that up. Um, I've talked about the value of ritual in writing, which I'm finding to be... um, 
the more I engage with ritual and try to like build up ritual, the more it works for everything that I want to do. So I really, really love that. I talked about my road trip uh, out to New York to see Elisa interview Neil Gaiman and how I got to hang out with Neil Gaiman a little bit. Um, that was really fun. So sign up at dearwriter.substack.com if you want to read the newsletter. But as a special bonus, I am going to read my latest uh, entry in Dear Writer, which is all about the Buffy tarot deck and my relationship with a kind of mysticism or things that cannot be unproven, the things for which you need faith. So it's really, it's a fun thing to write uh, and I kind of have fun with it. So I'm going to go ahead and record that. That will play after my interview with Mary-Kate Wiles, Sinead Prasad, and Sean Prasad from Shipwrecked Comedy. Uh, how I get connected with them? Many, many years ago, uh, I think it was like 2013 when the Lizzie Bennet Diaries came out. My kids were young. We watched Lizzie Bennet Diaries every week when it got released. We would get so excited when a new one was out. We watched it all as it was happening. Um, and it was so much fun. If you haven't seen Lizzie Bennet Diaries, it's basically Pride and Prejudice, if you didn't see that coming, but done in like a modern sort of vlog setting when vlogs were big, you know, in the early 10s or whatever. But Mary-Kate Wiles is the actress who um, played Lydia, the little sister Lydia, and she was absolutely delightful. And I was sitting down to have coffee with a former student of mine who actually, by coincidence, also ended up in Denver. And she mentioned that she was working with uh, Mary-Kate Wiles um, on an audio drama that they're they're doing. And I was like, oh my God, Lizzie Bennett Diaries, that's Lydia. And so I was like, hey, you know, I would love to... To, uh, to talk to her about, you know, doing her own work and having this independent production and all of that. And so my student got us in touch. And, um, and then I ended up being able to speak with Mary Kate, um, her husband, Sean Prasad, and his sister, Sinead Prasad. Uh, Sean and Sinead are co-writers. Uh, Mary Kate is a producer and an actor. Uh, Sean and Sinead are also actors. They basically wear, I think, pretty much every hat that there is to wear in the independent production uh, company. And I got a chance to talk to them about Shipwrecked. But Shipwrecked, the work that Shipwrecked is doing is so incredibly fun. They have, if you go and look at Shipwrecked Comedy on YouTube, there'll also be a link in the show notes. Uh, you will see that they most recently had a web series called Headless, which is a retelling of Washington Irving's short story, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. But of course, with their really fun, very modern, kind of irreverent, very funny take on on, on that story, that basic story. So that is a lot of fun. Um, and for the Buffy fans out there, I got to tell you, Tom Link is in it. So if if you didn't already want to watch it just on that description of what it is, uh, definitely you want to catch that Tom Link action in it. They also did a few years back uh, a series called Edgar Allan Poe's Murder Mystery Party, and pretty much everything you need to know about that is right on the label. Just incredible. Absolutely recommend it. Um, very, very funny. Very, very fun. I was so excited to be able to sit down and talk with them because for creative people, it can sometimes be really hard to do do what you want to do and still, you know, eat and keep the lights on and feed the cat. It can be incredibly challenging. And especially when you're out in Hollywood, where there are a lot of people competing for the same kind of work, it gets really difficult. And I love that they did this thing and created their own company and started creating their own things and making that happen. It's something that for many years, um, I have been telling my students, they have basically 
actually a television production studio in their pocket. They, you know, you can do with your phone most of the work that you want to do. And being able to do things independently, is it may not be, you know, the same outwardly like to other people as like you know working on a big show and being a big name and being famous and winning emmys and all of that kind of stuff first of all this work doesn't preclude winning emmys uh the lizzie bennett diaries was an independent project and that did actually win emmys and there are more awards and, and recognition out for this kind of work now but the really fulfilling creative work is the work that you really want to do and the chances of of finding work that you really want to do with the people that you really want to work with in a, a big, highly competitive environment like Hollywood, like traditional publishing for novelists, it can be really difficult. And going independent is a real option that I kind of wish a lot more people would get comfortable with and, and reconsider because it it gives you opportunities to do work that really means something for you. And I think that that is incredibly important. So before we get started, let me go ahead and just give you um, a bit of information on our guests today. Uh, Mary-Kate Wiles starred as Lydia Bennett in the Emmy award-winning web series, The Lizzie Bennett Diaries. And her combined digital projects boast over 100 million views and over $1 million in successful Kickstarters. She's since gone on to star in a slew of popular digital series, films, and has made multiple TV appearances, most notably as the human incarnation of iconic cartoon villain Vicky in the live-action reboot of The Fairly Odd Parents, Fairly Otter for Nickelodeon. She's an accomplished producer, and her production company Shipwreck Comedy has raised over $400,000 on Kickstarter to fund their various projects, which have won numerous awards and been featured in such outlets as Collider, The AV Club, and TV Insider. Sinead Persaud is an Indian-American writer and a Ouija board owner from Massachusetts. In 2013, she co-founded the popular literary historical comedy YouTube channel Shipwreck Comedy. She is a Sundance New Voices fellow with publications in the Gasoline Magazine, Hungry Shadow Press, the No Sleep Podcast, and the 13 Podcast. Most recently, she wrote for the Dead by Daylight dating sim Hooked on You, which is now available on Steam. Sean Persaud is a first-generation Indian-American who studied pre-medicine at Boston University and then moved to L.A. to put his degree to work as a writer and actor. Sean co-founded Shipwreck Comedy with his sister Sinead, and the two have written and starred in numerous projects, including the award-winning digital series Edgar Allan Poe's Murder Mystery Dinner Party and Headless, A Sleepy Hollow Story, a series for which they crowdfunded over $200,000. Sean and Sinead were selected to the Sundance New Voices Lab for their pilot The Local Haunt, a comedy-inspired by their time working at museums in Salem, Massachusetts. As an actor, Sean has appeared in numerous commercials and TV shows, including Criminal Minds, Super Pump, The Battle for Uber, and Gaslit. He also appeared alongside Gary Oldman in the David Fincher film Mank on Netflix. Most recently, he and Sinead wrote for the video game Hooked on You based on Behavior Interactive's Dead by Daylight franchise series, which debuted at number one on Steam and is currently over 90% positively reviewed. All right, so now you've gotten to know them a little bit. I'm going to move us right into my interview with Shipwreck Comedy. So one of the things that I kind of wanted to talk to you guys about is uh, the path of being independent 
creators. Um, like you launched Shipwrecked and you you kind of have done your own thing in that space. Um, I guess I guess the first thing I want to ask you about is like, how did Shipwreck get started? Um, what made that happen? Well, Shipwreck started because uh, we are in a very strange industry where your fate is left up to people who don't really know who you are or care. So Sean uh, was in L.A. He's an actor. And I was in school for film and TV production at NYU. And I'd written a couple scripts. And one of them happened to be about Edgar Allan Poe uh, buying Girl Scout cookies. And I was like, well, one day Sean will come visit New York and we'll make it. And then I ended up moving to L.A. um, for a job. And we thought it would be really fun to make this sketch. And then that kind of turned into a bigger thing where we... We made a vlog version of Edgar Allan Poe um, because vlogs were very in back then, literary vlogs. Um, we have a, a famous literary vlog actor with us oh, please. right now. Oh, to um, be a so famous yes. literary vlog actor. It's very <laughs> the Lizzie Bennet Diaries was a fire. Yeah. And, it was um, fire, chef. Yeah, it was fire. And so <laughs> we had a little bit of momentum from that, from the, the Tumblr world. And from then we were like, maybe we could do this make let make stuff and be a youtube channel and um have that be the way that we get our our voices heard and we can write parts for ourselves and yeah so from from the little sketches that we did came um uh our, our bigger projects which was edgar Allan Poe's murder mystery dinner party and then from then we were like a solid little production company yeah and you've you've built your own niche you've made your own genre <laughs> which is like this yeah this very funny um s- historical to the event that like a lot of these people really existed you got literary in there it's all really funny it's um it's it's such an incredible thing i love that it came from that idea um and i think that that shares some dna mary kate with the lizzie bennett diaries which was you know uh, taking pride and prejudice making it modern and doing it in this um you know direct to camera kind of vlog style so um when did you come into that's how Sean and Sinead got started. When did you come into Shipwrecked? Yeah, I so it was 2013. Mm-hmm. The Lizzie, is that right? Yes, the Lizzie yeah. Bennett Diaries had come out, and I uh, was a hot commodity in the web series world because of that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but which is not how I would necessarily describe myself anymore. But it was a fun time where I was getting asked to do a lot of cool things that I was asked to be in this project called Kissing in the Rain. Um, which Shipwrecked was doing. And I I legitimately, like, I, I watched their channel and I saw uh, a Telltale vlog, which was the Poe vlog that uh, Sinead mentioned. And I thought, that guy's very handsome. And now he's my husband. <laughs> and I do think I, I was sort of charmed by the, like, weirdness and uniqueness of it, because at the time there were a lot of, of literary vlogs mm-hmm. that were coming out. And as a person who was in the the one that sort of started the whole thing, it was kind of hard for me to really watch or view or appreciate any of these other ones that came out, which isn't to say that I'm not like, it, it was great. I think it's a great thing that happened. It was just weird for me to be able to like judge them objectively because I was so close to being in this one that was very popular. Um, but I, 
I thought that the way that Shipwrecked did it by like making it Edgar Allan Poe vlogging, which of course makes zero sense, was so clever and so made it just automatically silly and fun mm-hmm. in a way that I I found really charming and um and uh, that was that. And so yeah, I was an actor in Kissing in the Rain, which is a series, a short series that we did that we released in 2014, and then. To due to a, a number of circumstances, I decided to come on as a as a producer. I sort of strong armed my way into the group as a producer before we made Poe Party at the end of 2015. I knew that Sean and Sinead had written the script, and when I read it, I was just like, at, at this point, this was a few years later, and you start to get the experience as an actor or a creative where you read your friend's scripts and they're so good and you start to like imagine them in your head and um, and then nothing ever, ever happens with a bunch of them. And that to me is really sad. That makes me really bummed out because I think, it, you know, it's just so amazing to see the things that people come up with. And I read that script and I was like, I'm not letting this not happen because it's it's too good like we have to make this you guys had a lot of success with kickstarter right um being able to get this funded um so what is that process like you start with the project you know what you want to do you make a little kickstarter and then just get the word out yeah i was just thinking about how it seems great and it has been and then we're always like wait we are all we're bad at budget oh god (laughs) (laughs) that is true I think that's a little bit of the catch 22 of Kickstarter is that you have to sort of decide how much money you need to make the thing before you actually know if you're making the thing or not. And usually you always need more money than you think you do. And that has been our experience each and every time. (laughs) Um, But I mean, we're so thankful for Kickstarter. We actually had a a chat with the head of film at Kickstarter the other day. she had reached out to us just because she was like, hey, I see you guys are doing things and it mm-hmm. seems like they're going okay. I'd love to talk to you. And we were like, oh, cool. Um, uh, obviously, ultimately, the goal would be to not have to continue to kickstart our things. But I think that has like also given us such a really visceral connection with our audience. Like our audience loves when we kickstart. It's very fun for everybody. And it makes, it just like enhances that feeling of it being a community project, you know, something that everybody is a part of, which is really cool. Did you start out at writers and then you just decided to act in it? Or did you start out as actors wanting to have material that you enjoyed? Um, Sean, I haven't heard from you yet. So how did did you start I was going to say, people are wondering (laughs) if Sean's even here. He's so quiet. Sorry, I was coughing earlier and I, I, I figured that was enough um yeah I I think Sinead and I have always done both Mm -hmm. um growing up we would make little movies and um just with our parents camcorder and um we yeah we grew up acting we did um I did street theater in Salem we were part of a Shakespeare troupe um for kids and I moved out here to be an actor and then when Sinead moved out we just started writing together and it definitely seemed like a a good thing to do while we were waiting for like real, real auditions, you know, auditions, jobs that would pay us. Um, It was nice to have something to do and to focus our creativity and, um, you know, have a sense of fulfillment. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, yeah. And then it kind of took over and it's like, yeah, we still work other jobs here and there. We still audition and, and stuff. But um, this, yeah, this turned into, it, it started as like, 
fun side thing to do while we were waiting and then, and then it turned into the thing and yeah for me i know for me it's always just sort of been intertwined the writing and the acting well for me it was i went to school for film and tv production mm-hmm. and my by my second year of nyu i was like i'm only a writer i'm not going to be a director i'm that's just not my balawick so writing it is and then i've always wanted to be an actor it was a confidence thing for me i was like well ugh, i gotta choose one hard thing to do i guess it's writing and then when i moved out here and realized that i could write things for myself and i wouldn't be like pigeonholed into some something that i di- didn't want or, or wasn't able to do that was really exciting for me um and then yeah i worked in i was an nbc page out here for my first year and shipwrecked really started as that started to wind down. And I was like, what do I do? I could take a job as a PA on a TV show um, and do that hard life, mm-hmm. or I can be a barista and make what we want to make. And I, I chose that. And my life would probably look very different if I'd taken the TV job. Um, but I know I would have been a terrible PA and assistant. <laughs> and I was like, this seemed, this is probably the best path for me. Um, how do you work collaboratively? Do you find that that is, um, does that open up a space for you to be like more inspired? Does it end up being where you see things going a certain way and then somebody you don't and then you split the difference? How do you figure that out when there's conflict in what way you want to go in the story? Well, I don't do any of the writing. It's all Sean and Sinead. So I will leave that up to them. And they have the added bonus of being siblings Mm -hmm. on top of being (laughs) writing partners. Mm -hmm. Um, But I will say, I think as a group, um, we all work really well together. And that's because we have very different strengths. I am very much the one that is uh, the annoying one reminding us of our deadlines (laughs) and um, writing emails Mm -hmm. and um, asking if they've done the things that I asked them to do. And they haven't. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I'm just a lot more type A, whereas Sean and Sinead are very creative and also a little like, a uh, little like water brain because you're always just like coming up with stuff and the ideas are flowing and the other like things that sometimes are important just flow right on out. So I'm happy to remember those things. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I think that's why we all work really well together is that we're not necessarily like, I mean, it's not like it's always perfect. Like we do butt heads Mm -hmm. on things sometimes. And I do like, I do provide not, I don't want to say notes, but like feedback on story stuff. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I, I definitely share my opinions when we're in the, the early stages before we've gotten on set. Um, but yeah, it's definitely more them. Do you guys want to talk to how you write together? <laughs> I don't know. I, I think I, as writers, we have different strengths and weaknesses. Um, I think, Sinead, you would probably say you're more the like blue sky, like coming up with ideas. Like you, you come up with ideas so fast. And so uh, you just generate ideas and stories and, and, and things. And I will sit in front of a blank sheet of paper for hours and just spiral. Um but I would say maybe I'm better at like corralling ideas and mm-hmm. and turning and turning things into um, uh, dotting dotting eyes and crossing T's and that kind of thing. Sean cares yeah. a lot, if if I may, having been privy to many a Zoom writing session. <laughs> Sean is a real stickler for things, always really 
not, I don't want to say making sense, but like from a plot structure, uh, he, he cares uh, a lot about like the plot making sense and like everything being set up in a certain way. And Sinead is just like throwing stuff out. Yeah. And I think that's- I'll write like 10 pages really quickly. Shot yeah. will take like eight years to write one page, but his <laughs> will make true. sense and that have a lot true. of really well thought out <laughs> jokes. And mine will be a lot. <laughs> and there will be some fun ideas, but he will have to go and be like, why? Why? <laughs> that doesn't, why would anyone do that? Um, so, yeah. And I, I wouldn't say you're more of an outliner that you, pro- you would probably, I because I like an outline. I'm like, once there's an outline, I'm so happy it's there. But I do, <laughs> I'm more like I want to dive in. And Sean's like, what if we actually figured everything out first? <laughs> Yeah. And we never do either. Mm -hmm. No, we always do a little bit of both. We outline halfway, we hit a wall, then we just dive in. And then we hit a wall and we go back to the outline. We're like, we should have finished this outline. And maybe that's just how it's always going to be. But yeah, we haven't really had like major, major issues. We've we've argued about like episode titles. Yeah, Um, which is pretty innocuous when it comes down to it, I suppose. And sometimes it's really about I'm just trying to think of like other other issues we've had with um with our other collaborators and I can't really think of any which a I think we've just been very lucky we we are working with people who are really on the same page as us who get our vision who are happy to defer to our vision um which is we are really really lucky about that and I also think that um it's I've certainly learned about, you know, picking your battles and um, prioritizing what you can compromise on and and what you won't. And I think that helps. I think the only issue that we repeatedly run into, sorry, is that um, you guys sometimes write scripts that we need a million dollars for. And Joe goes, you need a million dollars for this and we have $200,000. So <laughs> Joe, our director. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only issue we commonly come well, up against. Yeah, because we like all our characters. We end up loving our characters so much. We want to give them all their own little worlds. And those worlds become B stories, C stories, D stories. And then we're like, well, we don't want to cut these now <laughs> because we wrote them and we love them. <laughs> And then that costs money. Like one of the things that I find really helpful, and again, I, I speak mostly to novelists, but I think that it's it's so interesting how creative delimitation works for doing TV shows and doing things like this. And and creative delimitation is basically just that you're given something and you have no choices about it. Like you can't go and change it because you're a magical writer with magical thinking. Like you have to work within these boundaries. And, um, and I have found a lot of times that when you have creative delimitation, it actually makes you more creative, more inspired. It can have that effect. Have you ever had a situation where some of these limitations came in and that inspired you to do something that in the end you wouldn't have done without it but you really loved by the time you finished it did you have any of those experiences in these shows i feel like the answer is yes yeah. although i'm definitely. not thinking of a specific it's definitely yes mm-hmm. and i agree yeah. because um like i said when i see a blank piece of paper i'm I, I spiral and i get paralyzed but when i'm told like well here are the things that you have to do then it's a lot easier for me um and i know we've had situations yeah. like that i mean just are a general example. There's nothing 
something really specific here, but our original script for Headless as a series was about 180 pages. And our original producer, who ended up quitting, was like, absolutely not. And we were like, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. (laughs) So we were like, how about 130? And I was like, no, I don't remember how much it ended up being. I was like 107, I think, before you guys Um, chopped it up. And we're like heartbroken, just shopping B stories, C stories. Mm-hmm. No characters. I don't. Well, a couple yeah, characters. Okay. A couple. We characters. combined some um, characters. Yeah, combining yeah, I... characters and being devastated. And now, now I think we can maybe remember one joke that we were like, "Oh, <laughs> we had to cut that out of fifty something pages of cuts." So there, there was a day that we were on set where we we had a scene set in um the the drugstore that while writing um it turned into a uh sort of cemetery for all these other scenes and all these other bits we we were like well we have to cut this and we need this information let's add it to the scene this this big gargantuan scene let's put this character in this scene and it was stuff that we should have excised completely from the get-go but sometimes we have trouble letting go so we we were on set and um joe our director was like we're looking at the schedule for tomorrow for this scene. It's it's a beast. Like we have characters in and out. We have timing issues with characters yelling across the room. We we just have we have characters moving. We have all this stuff going on over here, and we have to track the geography. And um, he was like, we're, "We'll never make this day." So we rewrote this entire scene knowing that we had to cut basically i think we cut like three pages we cut a character we cut an entire bit in in retrospect it it looks it of course we needed to do that the things that we cut didn't need to be there um and it worked out great and so sometimes i wish we we could get there a little sooner (laughs) and not not be on set and have to do that stuff um and that's that's a problem, I think, because we we wrote this over the course of the pandemic. We we took about a year to write this, and it was very disjointed. And we we got you know we we took breaks, and so it was a, a somewhat a product of of our writing process, I think. But that was an example of like being told, "Here are the parameters. Here's what the the script, the scene is, and here's what it needs to be." And it completely worked out. And I'm so glad we did it. I'm I'm happier that we did that. Even if we could have made the day, I think the final product is better for it. And there are also times, this isn't something that we do, but on set where our team has to sort of do the same thing um, and go, oh, we... We have to come up with something new because we cannot do what we thought we were going to do. And um, for example, there is a shot in at the end of episode seven in Headless where a bunch of characters are standing around a bag of heads. If you don't know anything about the show, <laughs> go watch there are a it. Lot of, You'll know. There are a lot of skulls. <laughs> a bunch of the characters are standing around a bag of heads talking about um this next head that they're going to choose to put on the headless horseman, and then the headless horseman will become this person. Um Boy, this show sounds bananas when you just <laughs> hop right into it. But anyway, we we are always shooting too much in one day. They did not have a plan to do it this way, um, but we were running out of time. And so 
whatever shots they had planned out for this whole conversation, this whole scene just turned into the camera on the ground where the bag is like turning around and looking straight up at all the characters standing over it. And um, it's one of our favorite shots in the show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like yeah, s- so such fun. a cool, fun way to tell this like tiny little bit of the story. And it's stuff like that, that like, that's when the magic happens when you're like down to the wire and you, you come up with something you didn't have planned before, which is fun. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And, you know, if Bag of Heads, for everybody listening, was not enough <laughs> to make you want to watch this, let me just say, it's also a musical. Like, you have... <laughs> true. Yeah. It was so awesome and unexpected, and I cannot tell you <laughs> how you. much I loved the musical pieces, you have a bard for the town. It's yeah. part of the magic. My favorite. Yeah. Part of the magic <laughs> of this, you know, of Headless is that you've got this this bard that's just singing, you know, like narrating. It's a Greek chorus and it's a and it's a bard and it's a musical guy. And was it it was a guitar or was it a ukulele? I can't remember. Ukulele. Yeah, ukulele. ukulele. Oh, God, you never go wrong yeah. with a uke. You know, that's <laughs> always, if, if, if anybody ever says guitar or ukulele, the answer is always ukulele. You got to go that way. Um, so it's I, so much more the vibe. Oh, so much more the vibe. <laughs> For sure. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Um, so do, are you guys songwriters too? I mean, how jealous do I need to be as a creative person of this little team <laughs> Not, that we have here? No, we mm-hmm. were pretty freaked out about, I don't, we weren't freaked out, but we were like, we'd written, that Prince to Leanne came first, right? We wrote that first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you guys were already writing Headless. Yeah, it was sort of in the midst. We wrote a song, a Dracula song, with our dear composer, Dylan Glathorn, during the pandemic. And we filmed that and put it out as a music video. That was super fun to, like, witness his process and then get to be a part of it and, like, pitch him lines. and, Mm. And, like, we knew the story of it, of the song. And so for this, we wrote, like, all the lyrics and we had to get across the plot points and... Um, write couplets and we're not very creative so they're all just couplets and they're not <laughs> not that we're not creative but we are not uh, songwriters so we were like oh, that works and then our composer and John Cozart who plays uh, Diedrich Knickerbocker the bard just put together this, the music and which the, is so oh funny because in, in interviewing John and uh, just talking about like magic like there in my opinion there's truly nobody else who could have played this role like we wrote this role with John in mind he is a friend of ours who's a big YouTuber and he's so infuriatingly talented it's stupid but interviewing him he'll be like oh it was easy I hate writing lyrics so like they did the hard part yeah. and we we're like are you insane? Like you came up with for every single song he sings, he came up with three or four different variations that he sent to us and they all sounded so different. We got to like handpick like, okay, we like this one for this, Mm -hmm. this episode and this vibe for this one. And, um, and I, it's so nice to hear you pick out that specifically because I think he in that role is just magic. It's so, so cool. It was so, it was, that might've been my favorite part of the entire process was hearing his Mm -hmm. tracks Mm -hmm. come through for the songs. Some of them were hard. We were like, couldn't pick between some of these. And then some of them we were like, okay, well, based on where this is in the episode and the story, like, let's go for the more, um, fast-paced one. <laughs> the more Jason Mraz. Mraz, yeah. Mraz. Um, but the weird thing about that was that we wrote the lyrics first and I could not wrap my head around this. I was like, how do you yeah, write you lyrics first? you were having a first? hard time. I, I, in my brain, it's like, I guess because the first, the first um, musician I really loved was Weird Al. I was like, no, you have to have the music. 
And then you <laughs> fit the you lyrics in. you watch Rocket Man? <laughs> yeah, and I didn't understand it. Jamie Bell hands Tim lyrics and then Taryn Edgerton writes the music. And that's what happened. Oh, that's what um, really happened it's so wonderful and then of course like me as a big Buffy fan the second I saw Tom Lank come in at the end and I was oh, like yeah. you had my heart yeah. you had my heart before that it was amazing that was <laughs> the end. Uh, but Tom Lank for anybody who is unfamiliar uh, he played Andrew in Buffy and was absolutely wonderful um, in that role and whenever I see him pop up anywhere I'm always absolutely delighted um, so and it was fun to see him kind of come in I mean not to be too spoilery but he will also be you know playing a, a bard character mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. um it definitely sure y'all look look anybody who has not yet watched this and is listening to this interview <laughs> just go and watch it it's going to be so like, incredibly worth it what? so two bars two bars <laughs> one town what kind of, bag of how, how believable is it that one small town in new york could have could afford two bards right like this multiple <laughs> yeah. you know i mean well yeah. there's that episode of gilmore girls where all the bards come into town and they're all like trying to beat each other because one of the bards got a record deal yeah. and so everybody's like oh this is where the bards go to get record deals it's <laughs> <laughs> really funny it was absolutely funny. excellent and i i love that about um headless and there was so much incredible creativity there and of course you started inspired by you know the classic washington irving story we've got you know ichabod crane coming to town and it's a really fun fresh interesting take on um on that kind of literary history. And then you go back a little bit and you've got Edgar Allan Poe's Murder Mystery Dinner, which in itself, like that is the title of the thing. That is the pitch. That is the bio. That is everything you need to know about what this is. (laughs) Um, And you open up with all of these, you know, characters who are based on these real writers, some of them somewhat anachronistically shoved into this same timeline, which I, I loved the bravery of that, of just taking all of these and knowing that you're releasing this on the internet where people are going to well actually you you know um Mm -hmm. and and they did they they did. Did. <laughs> I'm certain that they did. And the thing is, like, one of the things that I always tell everybody is that fiction is not answerable to reality. And either that you can't say that's not realistic and condemn it. And you can't say I'm putting it in this way because that's what really happened, because that's not what fiction is for. You know, fiction is for exploring and understanding reality through a, a, a filter of storytelling. And that's what we do this for. Um, so, yeah, doing that on the Internet where people are going to well actually you to death. But having, I mean, I think I have to say, like, out of all of the jokes, I think the runner with Emily Dickinson is my favorite. <laughs> How nobody remembers that she's Aww. there. She's constantly Aww. getting shoved aside. People are like, the the one lady, what's her name? What's her name? You know, <laughs> um, so much fun. So so here's a question. Do y'all hate Emily Dickinson or what was that? Where did that come from? <laughs> No, what? I I don't feel strongly one way or the other. other. No, she's an excellent poet. Mm -hmm. She actually, we had just already featured her in like a little short Mm -hmm. on our channel, um, which is called like Emily Dickinson's Guide to Guide to Surviving the Holidays. I should know this. Something like that. I wasn't there for that. So that was part (laughs) of the inspiration of having her around. Was that we had already used her in something Mm -hmm. as well. And um, you know. 
I love her. And I recently actually watched that show Dickinson, which was really good. A very different take yeah. on Emily Dickinson than our yes. Emily Dickinson. That Emily Dickinson parties. Um, <laughs> ours certainly does not. Does not. But we are like, oh, we love literature. We love to make shows about literature. But also we go for the most basic joke about a lot of these people. We're like, yeah. Hemingway sucks. And always drunk, Emily Dickinson yes. stayed home. So yeah. she's going to be... Uh, ignored and it's not like yeah. the most highbrow <laughs> and, <laughs> but it's such a fun interpretation like I really loved the way that you you interpreted all of these characters and of course you know having the Bronte sisters be the mean girls really really love that um, there's so much really fun things um, within that but like just having an Agatha Christie style you know story where everybody's dying you know it's a bottle because everybody stays within this like basic one location you have different sets for mm -hmm. rooms but they're basically this one location and then you're doing this classic murder mystery and by the time we got to the end I was like how in the world are you gonna have you know the big explanation and the big explanation in itself while you know be while one of those tropes, tropes not being a bad thing, tropes are awesome. Um, while one of those tropes of the mystery genre, like the big explanation at the end and how did you figure it out, became so interesting in how convoluted it was and fun <laughs> and and kind of playing with that part of the genre. Um, it, was that the appeal? Was going in and, and like playing with this like mystery idea um, and being able to get to that convoluted thing? How in the world did you did you have have like a murder mystery, you know, serial killer board with the red <laughs> string. <laughs> yes. Oh. He made my entire living rhythm <laughs> wall. It wasn't like a murder board, mm -hmm. but it was, we had every single character and every single location and every single episode. And we had like where they were, who they were with, mm -hmm. how they mm -hmm. die in every episode. It was like, yeah, so helpful. It was, we would not have been able to keep track. Yeah. It was a lot to track. And we were, yeah, that was one of the ones where we were like, we just kept writing and then we hit a wall and then we outlined and then we hit a wall and then we went back to writing and we were like, we need something to to track all of this. Yeah. But yeah, one of our favorite movies is Clue. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, the ending of the endings of that movie uh, where Tim Curry just runs around explaining everything. <laughs> it's not really the same vibe that that we go for, but mm -hmm. it's just really it's really fun and really satisfying to finally get all the information and um, there's there's part of us that worries like, is it just an, all of this work just for an info dump? But A, I mean, that is the trope. And B, yeah. I think um, Joe and the crew made made it work, made it really fun to watch and the, yeah. and the actors. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I've watched every single episode of Hercule Poirot, and that is just what happens at the end yeah. of every episode. Mm -hmm. And I love it. Yeah. Well, that's so. I mean, that's part of what it is like, you know, a lot of times we'll talk about as writers, um, these, you know, tropes that we go back to. And sometimes you can get into the space where you're like, well, no, that's been done before. It's like, well, it's all been done before. The thing is, how are you yeah. going to do it? And what ways are you going to do it that you can have a lot of fun with? And that kind of brings me to one of the things that um, that I talk to writers about um, is the idea that the goal is not good. The goal is done. 
right? Um, because if you go into something and you're always worried about, am I going to make it good? Then you're going to get things in your head like, oh, there's a trope. I can't have a trope. I mean, God, but yes, you can. You absolutely should. If you're doing a fairy tale, open with Once Upon a Time, open with a prologue. I'm not a fan of prologues in general, but sometimes you got to do it. <laughs> not a fan of VO in general, but if you're doing noir, put that shit in and do it in a way that is really <laughs> super fun, right? Um, have as yes. much fun with it as possible. And so I think that when we get into this space where we're like, um, it's not good enough, which happens, I don't know about you, but for me, from the second I start to conceive of any idea, the first thing it runs through is it's it's not good enough filter. And I have to switch this to a will it be fun filter, right? And I find that when I do that and I don't worry about whether it's good or not, that's when I have the most fun and I do my best work. Um, how do you handle the not good enough filter? What do you do to, to kind of turn that off? I, I rely on Mary Kate to make me yeah. do it <laughs> because I'm constantly thinking this isn't good enough. Mm -hmm. This isn't good enough. Yeah. I mean, the, I, it's great advice and I should listen. I should take it to heart more. But Actually, we're so the next thing we're doing is an audio narrative um, film noir. Mm -hmm. And I had that moment the other night as we were like, we were going through doing like a final, a final rough pass. <laughs> and I I was just worried. And I was like, oh, these aren't good. These aren't good. And then I just a, a flip switched. And I was like, these are fun. I think these are fun. And I think our fans especially are going to enjoy this. And, and, and um, I think the our our troop of actors is going to really have fun with this. I think that's and... also maybe again, not the writer here, but something that comes with like, you know, we've done this before and thankfully everybody seemed to, for the most part, really like what we did before. Mm -hmm. And we hold our ourselves to an incredibly high standard, which is good because, you know, it means we're really proud of the stuff that we make. Like I don't, I don't think we could be prouder of Headless if we tried. Like it's a it's a damn miracle that that show is as good as it is considering how difficult it was to make. So you're bringing that energy to each new script. You're like, "Oh man, what if, you know, it's not as good as the yeah. last one?" And 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 I uh, I think that can be hard in anything you do when you're, you know, creating stuff when you are lucky enough to create a lot of things, you're always kind of judging it up against the stuff you've done before. Uh, definitely. Uh, but I do have a quick question for Sean and Sinead getting us a little bit away from Shipwrecked because I read that you guys wrote for a video game that was um, in the uh, in the uh, Dead by Daylight series, which I have played. I My husband oh, I played wow. that with his best friend <laughs> online. And so when I, when I read that, I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. Because writing for video games is something that I've been studying to a certain degree video game writing but it is uh -huh. it's such a different animal and I was just wondering how did you get into a job writing for a video game and how did that experience how was that different from uh from the stuff that you're doing where you create all the outcomes and don't have to accommodate for a player going rogue on you <laughs> <laughs> a friend of mine from college was uh, uh working at this company that he, he ended up somehow getting a job for KFC um, programming a marketing sort of style gimmick like game for them. It was a dating simulator where you have to woo Colonel Sanders. <laughs> it's called I Love You, Colonel Sanders. 
Um, and it was like in like a chicken school. Yeah. I love everything about this already. It's It's pretty great. Honestly, Um, he's pretty hot. And and it's like all the art is sort of like anime style. You can go on Twitch and see people playing this game, trying to successfully um, make Colonel Sanders love them. So dead by daylight saw this and they loved it. And um, so, so they wanted to do something like that. And our friend got the job and, um, so basically, it's a dating simulator uh, where you are on an island with four of the original killers from Dead by Daylight, and you have to pick one and then successfully woo them or not. I, I won't say what you can the change right... your mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, he got this job and he was like, well, we're taking horror and, and monsters and and combining it with romance and yeah. comedy and absurdism. So he called us up and was like, do you want to work on this? And Because we when like, yeah. you have something that involves romance, comedy, monsters, and absurdism. Oh, who else are you going to call? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was, um, that was actually a good example of what we were talking about before, where we had a sort of list of uh, regulations that we had to sort of uh, mm-hmm. conform to. Um, we had the characters that they were letting us use. Um, and 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 it was kind of nice to be brought on to something. And if we pitched something and it was a no, like, okay, you just let it go. Yeah. Whereas like with it. us, there's like, there's nobody really telling us no at that point. Um, so you kind of get, <laughs> yeah, get married to things. And, uh, and here it was like, all right, there's nothing we can do. We're not in yeah. charge. So um, but that was, it was fun. really there, fun. There was four of us and we each picked a we, we came up with the bigger narrative and then we each picked a character and kind of wrote their own narratives and the like dialogue. A, yeah, trajectory. And we got to come up with like specific games within the game for our killer. Um, it's so fun. And it was our first experience, like working in a group, not like first experience, but and that was really fun and a good experience to be like knocking ideas with other people. That is so cool. And also, like, I have to say, I've been withholding the title of the game until we've talked about it a little bit, because Dead by Daylight, of course, involves murderers and killers. And then the the romantic story is hooked on you. Um, and having been, you know, left on a hook at various times as I played Dead by Daylight, I, I got the double meaning there. And I really thought it was awesome. Yeah. So. Yeah, that was pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, it's cool. It's a much, much different oh vibe. Yeah. Oh, the artwork on that is actually really great. I mean, there's some it's, it's really we incredible didn't, yeah. stuff. Uh, just in the we general, didn't see yeah. the artwork mm-hmm. until like halfway through. And we it was kind of like getting John Cozart's song. Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, my God. It, it sounds so cool. And I can't wait to, to take a look at it. I didn't know it existed until I saw your bio today. So I haven't had a chance to play it yet. But having yeah. played in Dead by Daylight, super, super into it. Um, all right. I don't want to take up too much of your time. It's been so much fun talking to you guys and i could talk to you all day i love everything that you're doing um tell me about the future for shipwrecked i know there's some podcast stuff going on some audio fiction what's what's next on your docket tomorrow (laughs) at 9 a.m we have our first recording session for our next big project which we kickstarted last year Mm -hmm. called the case of the greater gatsby oh (laughs) which um is a fun uh, noir that imagines that F. Scott Fitzgerald was murdered in 1940 when he was in Hollywood pursuing screenwriting, which is all true except for the murder part. Or is it? <laughs> or is um, it? 
So, yeah, so this is something we're really looking forward to. We've never done an audio narrative before, and this is an idea that we've had for a long time. Uh, if you are a Shipwrecked fan, you will know that we've done a noir. We did a, a, sh a short film, I say in air quotes, because it's about 40 minutes long. That's kind of a noir send-up. We did that uh, in 2017, and that was always meant to be the prequel for this series, which... Um, truly, if we were filming, it would cost many millions of dollars. So we finally were like, you know what, let's let's try our hand at audio. And this is a way that we can still tell this story that we've wanted to tell for a long time. Um, so that's next up for us. We also have a podcast called Make Sean and Sinead Love Movie, yes. um, where we sure invite do. guests on to make us watch a movie they love that everybody else hates. <laughs> Terrible movie that you know a guilty pleasure uh -huh. and then we discuss the movie we maybe they made us love the movie i don't know um, sometimes they do this month's guest is actually uh our friend alexei who um was the director of uh, hooked on you oh. so we talk a little bit more about that and if you are a member of our patreon there's a bonus episode where we talk more with our guests play some play some movie games and his movie was Pacific Heights. So, oh, you know, fun. You <laughs> Thank you so much for taking this time. Um, I loved talking to you. I love all the work that you're doing. I can't wait to see and listen to the next thing that comes up. And I will make sure to tell absolutely everybody I know about Shipwrecked and how great y'all are. So thank you so thank much. You. Thank you. I really appreciate it. This, <laughs> this was great. All right, everybody, I hope that you picked up some inspiration to go out on your own, do the things that you want to do. These guys did it and you can do it too. There's nothing holding you back from doing whatever it is that you want to do. You can absolutely make that happen. And now I'm going to read for you my most recent Dear Writer letter about the Buffy tarot deck. Distortions of Faith once again, my access to meaning is through Buffy. Dear writer, I have a mildly antagonistic relationship with the mysterious, the religious, the unexplained. I come from a tradition of preacher men. My maternal grandfather was one and my father was one. Of course, by the time I was old enough to understand anything, my father had become an atheist. I often wish he'd lived long enough for us to have a real conversation about that because I am dying to hear that story. And dying is pretty much what I'll have to do before I ever hear it. On the one hand, I feel deeply within myself that there is more about the essential truths of the universe that we don't understand than we do. I know there's something in ritual and faith that is one of the most authentically human experiences you can have. I also know that our natural existential dread provides a lot of opportunity for bad actors to manipulate that fear into a generator for money and power and private jets. On the other end of the belief spectrum, New Age ideas don't sit well with me either. My mother was never officially diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, but I have all the markers of an adult child of a narcissist, so, well, there's that. The highly malleable nature of some New Age ways of thinking fed neatly into her delusions of grandeur. New Age is itself a highly suspect classification of ideas and practices that were stolen by mid-century American culture. Home of steal that shit, file off the serial number, bleach the meaning out, and make an Instagram post about it. As such, it becomes a capitalistic and essentially meaningless repackaging of ideas and practices. Basically, it's the craft cheese of spirituality. 
That doesn't mean that the original traditions are in themselves suspect. It's just that my exposure to them through my mother in the 80s was not in any way genuine in the same way that craft cheese isn't really cheese. Now, my ambivalence about the ways in which specific people corrupt and manipulate sacred ritual and faith practices doesn't mean that I believe that there is nothing of value to be found in those practices. It just means that I've come to a place in my life where I feel particularly disingenuous when I engage with any of it. Until earlier this week, when I bought myself the Buffy Tarot Deck. This is not my first rodeo with tarot decks. I have three decks that I've had for decades. Two are gifts, and one was a deck I got in college. Growing up with my mother and knowing instinctively, if not consciously, that the only way to connect with her was through her specialness, I learned about the tarot and believed in the corrupted form of mysticism that my mother was promoting to support her delusions. I even based my 2007 novel, The Fortune Quilt, on the ideas behind the tower card. The tower was a card that came up for me a lot in those days, which made sense as I have had throughout my life a tendency to build tall, ornate, and rickety as fuck towers upon land that could not sustain them for long. During the time when I was writing the fortune quilt, my first big tower was getting wobbly and just about ready to fall. That tower was built with warped steel made of my perception and understanding of my mother and my childhood, and the dark little fictions I had been fed about how everything that was wrong was my fault because I was inherently ugly and unlovable. Once that tower had fallen, I found myself turning away from the tarot, which I had often turned toward for wisdom and understanding and divination while that tower was still standing. Over the years, I've still loved the tarot conceptually. I respected the meaning in the cards, and while I no longer believed in its ability to tell the future, I have always and without fail believed in its ability to provide insight and, more importantly, story twists. I mean, hell, you do a reading for a character and out of nowhere the fucking Five of Swords shows up? Damn! But in a similar way to how I felt hollow and somewhat angry whenever I went to a church, I felt similarly when dealing with the tarot. Even though I knew that there was wisdom in those cards, I felt hollow when I tried to use them, with only one exception, writing. Pulling a tarot card in the middle of drafting when you don't know what to write is an amazing tool. What's funny is that I didn't really reject that tool so much as forget about it. It's like the tarot existed in a space I simply did not want to visit. I couldn't bring myself to use them, nor could I bring myself to throw them away. So I've been carrying around these three decks everywhere I've lived, setting them on a shelf somewhere, and never, ever opening them. Then I found out that a new tarot deck was out, a Buffy tarot deck, and I wanted it, my precious. But I didn't get it, not right away. Someone had told me about it, it looked amazing, I said I wanted to buy it, and I didn't. I conveniently forgot about it until I saw another mention of it and finally decided I should have it. I mean, I'm a Buffy scholar and so is my husband. We should have the Buffy tarot deck. At around the same time, Rachel Pollock died. I didn't know a lot about Rachel, just that she was a friend of Elisa and Neil and that she'd been ill for a while. But when she died, I discovered that this friend was the Rachel Pollock, a trailblazing science fiction and comics writer, and a person who had written one of the most formative American texts on guess what? The Tarot. As I said, I am deeply ambivalent about assigning mystical meaning to anything in life, but I took this opportunity to heed the significance of the particular timing and bought myself two things, the Buffy Tarot deck and a copy of Rachel's 78 Degrees of Wisdom. Since that day, I have become mildly obsessed. 
I scanned each of the beautiful cards into my computer so that I could still have the amazing and pristine art even after I'd grunged it all up by shuffling and doing readings with my grubby little hands. I'm starting a tarot journal, figuring out the meaning for each of the cards as I see them. I'm doing readings for friends. I'm rusty as fuck, but it feels like finally having a drink of meaning after years of thirsting in the desert. Some years ago, when my husband and I were still just friends, I remember him telling me that he didn't need joy in his life because he had meaning. And I was like, what the fuck kind of bullshit is that? We often talk about that conversation and laugh. But as I work through all the shit I need to work through in order to be able to write again, I realized that I've been chasing joy and avoiding meaning. Not in my work, really. I've been podcasting for years, finding little nuggets of meaning in stories and examining it. And that has been a great professional joy for me. But meaning in the personal arena? I resist it. I resist the deep need within us all to connect with the things we cannot prove nor fully understand. I don't have the strength to believe in anything that cannot be functionally proven as real. And that comes directly from having been gaslit by people who were supposed to love me for a good chunk of my life, first in my childhood, and then in an adult relationship that repeated those same reality distorting patterns. I like to keep my feet firmly on the ground, to know that what I know is real and not to muck with forces that cannot be proven. I do not fuck with faith. Faith is an avenue for darkness to slide in and whisper in your ear, to change the shape of the world as you know it, and encourage you to build a tower on land that will not hold it. I have crashed and rebuilt two towers based on faith in people who deeply betrayed me. I've been taught from birth not to believe myself and my own perceptions, but to trust in others who can confirm reality for me, and thus give them the power to distort my reality. Now... I rely on what I know through my own experience. I trust no one with my sense of reality. But there are things unknown that are also known, and I miss them and crave them. And maybe now is the time when I'm safe to look at them once again. Maybe. But you know what's funny? My self-card, the symbol that represents me, is the moon. In 78 Degrees of Wisdom, Rachel Pollock says, Remember that the star and sun give off their own light, but the moon reflects the hidden light of the sun. The imagination distorts because it is reflecting inner experience to the outer mind. In the first season of Big Strong Yes, when I was deep in the total destruction left by my second tower falling, I quoted Brene Brown quoting the poet Mizuda Masahide, Barnes burnt down, now I can see the moon. I even commissioned independent artist Christina Cooley to paint a series for me with symbols representing me and my kids, cracked but re-glued with gold, as in the Japanese art of Kitsugi. And you want to see something funny? Okay, listeners, in this part of the essay, I inserted an image of the moon card from the Buffy tarot deck, and it is the character who was named Faith. The shadow of the moon is a difficult place to be. It's hard when you're in it to see what is really real through the shadows and the reflected light around you. And yet, having to do that pretty much since birth, having to discern and examine and question what I think I see versus what people are telling me I see, means that I can finally now exist in this space without being as susceptible to the reality distortion fields of others. It was a hard-won victory, and most of my life has been spent deep within those shadows and not being able to tell what's real and what's just darkness. For a long time, I've been battling those shadows by keeping my feet firm on the ground and only believing in what I can prove to be real. 
The next stage is trusting myself enough to understand that there are things in the universe that can be known without requiring proof and that engaging with those things can be a source of wonder and joy. But that requires faith, not in others, not in religious practices, not even in the tarot. It requires faith in me, and I'm working on it. Everything, L. All right, everyone, that is it for this month. I will be back next month with I'm not exactly sure what, but it'll be something very, very cool. I promise you that. Uh, thank you so much to Shipwreck Comedy for hanging out with me today. Definitely check out the links in the show notes to Shipwrecked, to all of the stuff that I talk about uh, in the Dear Writer column um, and to Dear Writer, the Substack, and to the Year of Writing Magically. Uh, all of the links will be in there. Uh, thank you so much for listening today. How Story Works is part of the Chipperish Media Network and you can show your support at patreon.com slash chipperish. All right, that's it. Now you don't have any excuses. Go write. <laughs>